VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It is Friday, August the 19th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer. It's come on with it Friday, don't you know? If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue to talk about whatever's on your mind. 273-5211 or elsewhere it's toll free long distance 1-888-590-VOCM which is 8626 okay you know where we're going right to Niagara Ontario to talk about the Canada Summer Games pretty good day yesterday I have to say uh, men and women's volleyball they finished at the top of their pool it's a it's a seeded pool sort of set up in volleyball. Now the winners of the pools, both men and the women, they'll move on to play against some of the Giants, BC, Alberta, Ontario. But well done themselves, get through 3-0 and in the volleyball pools. And with the softball, big win yesterday over Quebec 7-3 to improve to 3-3, three and three, keep their medal hopes alive. So good, good luck, congratulations to the men's softball team. Also, I want to throw this out. There is a young lady from Waterford Valley High School. Her name is Grace Mack. She set a U18 record in the women's 1,500 meters with a time of 4.39.40. Congratulations to Grace, a national record set at the games for the U18 category pretty nicely done doing pretty well in golf too so a fella named ryan howell he's been playing some pretty stellar golf up there he built on his 70 200 par 70 yesterday with a 69 he's in second place in the men's competition ethan effort who's had a great summer he's also under par on the women's side the girls side Paige allen is in 17th and sanjana gulapali she's now in 20th place but pretty good showing on the golf course as well okay so there's a few things in your Canada Games update. All right, so really looking forward to Monday in the Stanley Cup parade. Just a couple of notes on it. I'm fielding some complaints. The city of St. John's is fielding some complaints about the fact that the parade is on a Monday. Now, of course, not ideal. You know, most people, I know lots of people work throughout the weekend, the Saturday, Sunday, but most people would have really liked to have this on Saturday afternoon, say, for instance. So the city, I think, had the only reaction available. It wasn't up to the city, it wasn't up to the New Hooks, it wasn't up to Nikki, it wasn't up to anybody but the Stanley Cup. The Cup is here on Monday, and it's the only day it is here, so that's when the parade will be. And I know that doesn't suit a fair number of people, but I'm anticipating huge crowds to cover the parade route on Monday. Can't wait for it, to be honest with you. All right, a couple of interesting ones. You talk about who inspires who in the world of sports. You know, maybe Jada Lee and the Danny Clearys and Michael Riders and Alex Newhooks and the Abby Newhooks and all the way up and down the line. Maggie Connors, who's getting play for the senior national women's team. This one, I actually, I'm going to mention this because I remember this happening. It was six years ago today that Tajikistani athlete Dishold Nazarov won himself and his country their first ever gold medal in the history of the Olympic Games. So he won it in the hammer throw. He's a monster of a man. So he had already won a gold medal in the Asian Games, but then he pulls it off in Rio de Janeiro. Since he's had that accomplishment, there's been a bunch of track and uh, field athletes come behind him that are now making waves on the international stage. And to a man, to a woman, they're saying their reason that they're now as good as they are and have trained as hard as they have is because of Nazarov and his country's and his own first ever gold medal at the Rio Games. How about that one? And this one here, look, I... 
I've watched a lot of horse racing, the sport of kings over the years. There are lots of concerns with the treatment of the animals. Now there's plenty of justifiable concerns with the doping of the horses. I mean, it's just getting away from them. So it's taken a huge black eye. One of the most famous names in the world of horse racing, of course, is William Bill Shoemaker. It was 1991 years ago today that he was born in Texas. He was so small, he wasn't expected to survive the night. But of course, size is an asset for the jockeys. So he was an absolute giant at thoroughbred racing. Won 11 Triple Crown races. Throughout his career, well, he broke a record at the age of 39, which was 6,033 victories. That record was in place for three decades. He won over 8,830 races during a career spanning 41 years. Uh, oldest jockey ever won the Kentucky Derby at the age of 54, and Schumacher died in, oh, actually, I can't remember, but he's born today, 1931. And yes, horse racing has certainly not what it once was, insofar as anybody's enjoyment. Still lots of money laid on the ponies. You want to talk about it? All right. I cannot remember the young lady's name, but we had an aviator, a teenager, on this show for a conversation. She was in Labrador at the time, attempting to set a uh, solo flight around the world record in a specific type of aircraft. I think she was maybe Danish. I can't remember. I was just going through my memory bank, but couldn't come up with it. But Labrador has been visited by another young person trying to attempt a solo flight around the world record, the youngest person ever to do so. He's a Belgian-British teenager. His name is Mark Rutherford, from a family of aviators. He arrived in Happy Valley Goose Bay on Wednesday. He was given a commemorative five-wing coin, copy of the Labrador History magazine, Them Days, and a piece of the mineral Labradorite. So he's 17 years of age. He began his flight on the 16th of March. He thought he'd be done in about two to three months, but all kinds of problems with paperwork and permits and visas. He was stuck in Crete for a month and a half, stuck in Dubai for another month. Now, he's already had his birthday. He was hoping to complete it by inside his age of 16, but he had his birthday on the road, so now he's 17. He's looking to get back in a week or two to the starting point of Sofia, Bulgaria. And he'll be a full year younger than the fellow who ha currently has the record. His name is Ludlow, and he was 18 when he did it. Travis Ludlow was that young man's name. So I'm not sure if Mr. Rutherford is still in Happy Valley Goose Bay at this moment in time. Good, good luck and be careful. He started to fly when he was 10. Got his pilot's license when he was 15 years of age. Mark Rutherford, just imagine, at that age... And that lonely sensation of flying around the world by yourself. He flies at about 5,000 feet above ground. So getting to have a real bird's eye look as opposed to up above the clouds and simply seeing the blue that is ahead of him. So Mark Rutherford, that's pretty cool stuff. 16 years of age trying to set the record. Okay. Let's talk a little privacy issues. So the hits keep coming for WestJet. So I have the WestJet app. And apparently they had a glitch in the matrix, which meant that some users were able to see other users' personal information, including their phone numbers, home addresses, dates of birth, email addresses, WestJet dollar and flight voucher details, in some cases the last four digits of the user's credit card number. And so WestJet is saying it's not really that big a deal, it was caught very quickly. It only impacted some uh, 0.05 of their customers. If it impacted any, it's a problem, right, potentially. They say it was the change in technology that led to this particular glitch. Okay, 
some of the most important information, credit card numbers, passport details, passwords were not exposed to other WestJet app users. But add that to the pile, and now they're appealing. There was an order came, uh, a judicial order sent to WestJet to say they have to compensate a traveler after a flight was canceled due to lack of staff, which they've been doing repeatedly, calling it a safety concern. You've heard me talk about this. It's WestJet and, and Air Canada. I've been receiving stories from f- travelers via email saying they're in the exact same boat. They had a flight scheduled. It got canceled. No fault of their own. It wasn't a mechanical issue with the airline, airliner. It was the fact they didn't have staff, which is not my problem as the traveling public, the paying public. But if you want to take on any of those travel-related woes, let's do it. Also in the world of privacy, Steve Kent. So Steve Kent has had now a ruling in his favor from the Supreme Court and said the city of Mount Pearl did breach Mr. Kent's privacy by monitoring Facebook chats between him and two former dismissed counselors, both Ledwell and Power. Okay. So you're all familiar with the issue here. He's been uh, the city's chief administrative officer when all these claims arose in 2019. The chats revealed some personal information and ongoing correspondence between the three. So that's how the city got wind of it. They looked at his work iPad, read the messages, and the Supreme Court says that they do not and should not have the right to read or to use the messages in the court and says that any reasonable person would find it highly offensive if their employer was reading their personal correspondence. Okay, and it cannot be used in the large appeal by the counselors of their dismissal. The appeal, I think, continues uh, in Supreme Court this fall. It brings on some larger questions, though, doesn't it? So many of you will have a laptop or an iPad or a cell phone that your employer has provided to you. And, you know, you conduct it as if it's your own personal phone. It's not like we're all carrying around two phones unless you got a burner. So what should your employer be able to see on your phone? Look, I pay for my own phone. They can't look at mine. But if you are just carrying a phone, and you know, that makes us always available 24-7. It's what it feels like, right, when your company is paying your cell phone bill and providing the telephone to you. But many people will be sending texts to their buddies about who knows what, you know, just whatever they're at on the weekend or other potential shenanigans. But what should your employer be able to see simply because they pay for the phone? I think that's just an interesting conversation that we can and should have. All right, and you wonder how our youth think about their privacy because it's probably not front of mind for them because they're not in jeopardy necessarily of having their uh, identity stolen, their credit card information stolen, those types of things that many of us older and adults think about. But they find themselves in some precarious situations because maybe, just maybe, they're not fully attentive to the privacy breach that they are also subjected to and some of their personal information that could be held against them. Uh, we've now understand the term sextortion more than we did in the past. So speaking with our youth about privacy-related matters is probably pretty important. Sticking with youth. There was information and update coming to the parents and the students in the K-12 system. Masks will not be mandatory for students, teachers, and staff throughout the entirety of the K-12 system. School year begins on September 7th. No one's wishing their time away. But like I mentioned yesterday, I didn't know this announcement was coming, but information on an update had to happen sooner than later. And so now that's been put forward. They talked about the fact, and this is coming from Tony Stack, the director of the NLESD. He said, masks all day long, particularly for young children, has proven to be problematic in some areas, in some cases, pardon me. Now, they'll strongly recommend that people will continue to wear their mask, but they're not going to be mandated. They are saying the caveat is not mandatory for now. 
they would potentially be reintroduced based on the number of illness-related absences. What that threshold looks like, I have no idea. But anyway, that's, I think, in many people's corners, probably welcome news. But now we're seeing how that has, you know, we were all in a bit of a bubble there for a while, right? Let it be your steady 20 and all those types of phrases that we threw at it. And now it seems maybe it's just because there's a shortage of things like children's Tylenol for the cold and fever. And the pharmacists say that they're able to monitor it, encouraging families to not stockpile these particular products and to speak to your pharmacist about alternatives as opposed to the name brand uh, children's Tylenol, for instance. But you may indeed see some of the general run-of-the-mill fevers and colds that we didn't see a lot of when we weren't on top of each other and, you know, behaving and acting and congregating like we were pre-pandemic. So it might be just more of it. So how will the school district and the department look at things like basic allergies, common colds, and staying home when you're sick? How do you factor that into the uh, absences related to illness? Because... We know there will be lots of children that will be staying home from school because they're not well, but it's not COVID. So how do you break all that down? How do you put all that in a pile to come up with the determination? Because the priority, of course, is in-person schooling. The school should be the first to open and the last to close. But I wonder how they're going to factor all those different equations, different uh, variables into the equation. And speaking of that, and the absent-related matter, I'd love to have an update from the various government departments that should indeed be following the advice from the Child and Youth Advocate regarding chronic absenteeism. We need to know why the children are not at school, because there's a variety of reasons why they wouldn't be at school. Some 6,600 of the students that were uh, in that school year, it was Jack Jackie Lake Cavanaugh was the Child and Youth Advocate at the time, that's important to know, and as many departments need to be involved with it. And this is not about monitoring people, but it'd be nice to know exactly what becomes of the chronically absent child and why they're not in school. The staggering number is 75% of students who are chronically absent in grade six never graduate from high school. Now, that is a big number and it should be of concern of all of us. A well-educated population is one of our real hopes to have long-term, viable, sustainable, healthy, happy, prosperous province. So 75% of chronically absent grade six students don't finish high school. We need to understand why. We need to be able to figure that stuff out. One last one on, well, maybe two. Still looking forward to speaking with Minister Hagee, the new Minister of Education, about what are the results from the high school symposium. I know I might be one of the few who are keep, uh, keeping the thinking, keep thinking about that, but it's a big deal. Preparation for post-secondary is critical. I mean, prep from grade three to four, and then from six to seven, and nine to 10, these are all important, of course they are. But the one big leap in your educational career will be entering into post-secondary. So I'd like to know more about that. Okay. Eastern Health is also reaching out to the general public for your submissions as to what to name the new adult mental health facility, mental health and addictions facility. Of course, over in the health sciences complex, construction continues, scheduled open in 2024. The deadline for submission is the 30th of September. It is not going to be named after a person. So I guess that means just names in reference to organizations or I don't really know what they might be looking for, but it will not be like I saw someone say maybe the, uh, the Morrissey Mental Health Facility after Joan Morrissey and her struggles with mental illness. But if you would like to put that in the hands of uh, Eastern Health, they're offering it up until the 30th of September. 
All right, what's this one here? Where am I going to find that story, Patty? So when the federal government, much to the chagrin of some, many, who knows how many, when they went to legalize cannabis years ago, there was a mistake made in the legislation. So part of the problem that's being experienced by the RCMP and lawyers and potentially impacting hundreds of cases in front of the Canadian courts is that the regulations designed to protect police officers who are required to commit crimes in the course of undercover investigations. Those exemptions were adopted back in the late 1980s to protect police from criminal liability if they were involved in the drug ring, buying and selling drugs as part of their ongoing undercover operations. That was not updated with the legislation that legalized cannabis. Now, the government says that it hasn't really made a big difference, but the RCMP are quite clear in saying, in light of the missing exemptions, a number of criminal investigations involving Canadian citizens or Canadian Canadian companies operating on Canadian soil could not be conducted by the RCMP. So it might not be documented issue and lack of evidence because of this mistake made by the federal government, but it just means that we haven't had the depth, the undercover presence of some law enforcement in these investigations and all the evidence that it brings to bear. So they say they're working to update it, they're kind of downplaying what it's meant. But of course it's not good if we're making mistakes with such big, I think, tectonic plate shifts in legalizing cannabis. And I'll stand by. I think it was the right thing to do. And I know some of you don't care what my opinion is, but that's okay too. All right, how are we doing on the phone there, Dave? All right, just a couple more quick ones here. We spoke yesterday about uh, St. Gabriel's Hall down in Marystown and the fact that over 100 years ago, the people in the area, they built it, they paid for it, and now, just because it sits on property associated with the Royal, the Roman Catholic Episcopal Cor- Corporation, it could be sold out from under them, and they're asking why. They're also in St. Vincent's, hoping that the those involved in coming up with the compensation for the Mount Cashel victims just tries to back out the private Kevin Kennedy Memorial Garden, which sits on the property of Sacred Heart Parish. Mr. Kennedy served in the Royal Canadian Regiment, killed in Afghanistan in April uh, 2007. His mother Kay spoke at the rally that they had took place in St. Vincent's the other day. I guess it was yesterday. The garden obviously means a lot to the Kennedy family. It means a lot to the area. You know, you just wonder aloud once again, not only whether or not these pieces of property should be up for sale, period, and again, nobody wants to, nobody's begrudging the victims their compensation, 100%. But what do we, how do we handle these very specific uh, pleas, whether it be for St. Gabriel's Hall or this Kennedy Memorial Garden, the Kevin Kennedy Memorial Garden? These are just some of the intricacies where it's all fine for Supreme Court rulings and everybody understands what's gone on here. But these are very specific and genuine questions being asked by people in St. Vincent's, people in Marystown, and other parts of the province impacted by this. Okay, quickly. So yesterday, the chief Chief officer for public health, Dr. Janice Fitzgerald, gave an update about the eligibility criteria for the monkeypox vaccine. We had very few doses, and now there's been more sent to the province. There's information about the entirety of the eligibility criteria on our website at VOCM.com. She did go on to talk about, please don't stigmatize the LGBTQ community, which is always important. Stigmatizing certain groups or segments of society is always problematic. But let me just take it to this, this part of the conversation. When HIV and AIDS was first understood and the investigations into so-called patient zero, which turned out they identified a Canadian employee of Air Canada, a steward. 
the problem became, very quickly, it was not just the ostracizing of the gay community and the stigma associated with it. Even the President of the United States, Ronald Reagan at the time, called HIV AIDS as a gay plague, and it was a gay cancer. And because it was, you know, thinking that even if monkeypox is primarily spread amongst the community, that community, it doesn't mean that you can't get it if you're not in the LGBTQ and others community. And we know this to be true if we simply look at the history of HIV AIDS. Now, all these years later, like I read, when I was in the UK there a few weeks ago, whenever it was, the BBC ran a story about the numbers of people contracting HIV and AIDS. And breaking it down, I think the number was 42, 42% of those diagnosed with HIV AIDS last year were straight people. As because it, no matter what you think, and someone sent me uh, an email about the gay pride parade in Montreal, call it the pox parade. But if anybody can get it, even if some are at higher risk, the fact of the matter is with HIV AIDS, the spread became like wildfire as opposed to contained because some people thought, well, I can't get it because I'm not gay or bisexual. When now we understand what that's meant. So I'll just put that in there. And of course, I have no interest. There's only, there's only two probable cases in the province. There's only something like 20,000 in the world. So this is in no, by no means about being afraid of anything. It's just that, I mean, history has been quite clear on some of these related matters. So I just wanted to put that out there. Oh, I wanted to give a shout out to the crowd up on the Great Northern Peninsula. Coming up uh, when? Coming up tomorrow. Tomorrow, Saturday. Uh, they, <coughs> it's called a Bikers Insisting Kids Eat Smart. So congratulations to Chris Humby and his family for organizing this e uh, each year. Last year, the rally, there was 40 motorcycles. They raised over $15,000. All going to Kids Eat Smart. The riders can send it to the school of their choice. So the route is from St. Anthony Airport, Main Brook, Conch, Plum Point, St. Anthony Airport, and then there's an optional Straits View run as well. So if you'd like to register your bike, which costs uh, $20, you can contact Chris Humby. You can text him or phone him at 454-6552, or he's on Facebook and FB Messenger, which is Facebook Messenger. We're on Twitter. Or VOCM Open Line follows there. Our email address is openlineofvocm.com. Tune each time. Back in 1966, for the eighth straight week at the top of the R&B chart were the Temptations. Bit of Motown. Ain't too proud to beg. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. So I spoke with a young fellow, didn't even get his name right, the uh, Belgian-British teenager who's up in Happy Valley Goose Bay. His name is Mac, not Mark. Mac Rutherford. I'm trying to think, who's that young lady we interviewed from Labrador as well, an aviator? His sister, <laughs> Zara Rutherford. So that was back in 2021. Amazing stuff for I me and the siblings to take this on. And they have not only a strong connection to Labrador themselves, but also with their dad. Their dad survived the plane crash near McCovic in May the 1st. 2019. Big thanks to Philip Earl, who also is a fellow aviator up in Labrador. Let's go to line number one. Merv, you're on the air. Hi, Merv. Um, pretty interested in that. Um, Patty, thank you for putting me on. I, I, I just uh, want to make some <clears throat> fairly brief comments this morning, and I'm speaking uh, on behalf of uh, CNL as uh, part of the, the executive on this issue. Um, as you know, uh, the um, Secretary Treasurer for the FFAW uh, stepped aside back uh, a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, and there's currently uh, a process uh, underway to um, to elect um, or appoint, whatever you want to call it, the, a new uh, Secretary Treasurer. I understand that uh, 
August uh, 26 would be the deadline for nominations, and I think the election is going ahead on the 21st. Uh, from CNL's standpoint, and I guess from my own standpoint as, as an observer from the public, um, uh, a bit concerned about the process and how democracy works in organizations, in particular in this case, because CNL had uh, worked with its uh, membership in terms of, of using, if you will, the election of that person to that position uh, in terms of uh, formulating a platform on a number of uh, key issues uh, that's affecting uh, CNL members, the harvesters, owner-operators of vessels, one of them probably at the very front end is the uh, issue of non-core license holders and what their future is going to be. Anyway, we what we've come to learn is that um, the membership uh, at large within the FFAW uh, is not uh, doesn't have the privilege to to vote on that position, and uh, when you start to break it down, there's actually 24 somewhere in the order of 2,400 uh, members of the FFAW that actually signed uh, cards uh, as part of the process in 2019 of formulating, uh, I guess, a rival if you want to call it that, a rival uh, union to represent them. Uh, that didn't work, obviously. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, the the punishment that's been uh, that's been raked out to uh, to these people for for engaging in that process, which was their democratic right, is that they don't get to vote on anything uh, during this process or any other process for for the time being. When that's going to end, I'm not entirely certain, but that's uh, some uh, discipline that was meted out to them. So. Um, Teddy, we did issue, uh, CNL did issue a press release on this one because we felt this was a concern for our members uh, to the extent that we should profile it, and I believe it should be a concern uh, for the general public when we see organizations uh, that is footloose uh, and fancy-free with the democratic process. I think it's something that we, we need to be concerned about. I just wanted to speak to that issue this morning. When there was an ongoing card signing campaign for Fish NL and they made the same type of ruling at the FFAW, I didn't agree with it, but I knew where they were coming from because there was an active attempt to usurp their authority, take away some of their members. And everyone knows inside the world of organized labor, a lot of it does come back to membership strength and numbers, dues and the rest of it. But now there is no such thing as fishermen. Mm -hmm. So they've extended an argument beyond its best before date because it's pretty empty. There is nothing. There is no fishnel. There is no rival organization. And even inside your newly founded group is representing a very niche number of people who own their own enterprise so mm -hmm. i'm not really sure they're on the right track here again now uh, what like i said i kind of got the argument last time even though i disagreed but this time i can't make heads or tails of omitting anybody for instance who's to say that someone who will be recognized a voter in good standing a member of the ffaw who would have gladly signed a fish and card but didn't want to stick their neck out Mm -hmm. They don't know who in the ranks is fully uh, in favor of the operations and the movements and the people at the helm of the FFAW. How could they possibly know unless people are vocally in opposition too? Because there's lots of quiet folks out there who thought, you know what, I'm going to watch this play out. I'm not going to put my, my business in the middle of this. I'm not putting my name in the middle of this. I don't feel like arguing about this on the wharf every day. And so who knows? And now they're okay to vote. So it's a bit of smoke and mirrors going here. And we'll get the FFAW on to respond to it because now they've omitted a group that doesn't even exist. Mm. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you use the word usurp, and 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 it's a good word. Um, you know, it 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 encompasses something very scary within a democratic process. And 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 you know, I contend, and we contend from the organization of CNL that that democracy within the organization, democracy in general, has definitely been usurped in in this case. I mean, the idea that a select group of people, I think the Inshore Council and some offshore council members that they have, plus the, the current executive in FAW, uh, now has the entire empowerment to elect a decision that, that is going to determine the future, really, of uh, a senior person you know, will be involved in the future of uh, all the CNL members that's out there. And, and look, if, I mean, I, I do buy into some level of discipline if, you, if there's a wrongdoing or if there's harm, intentional harm being set out to to an organization, um, you know, back in 2019, if the FFAW felt that there was an intentional and an all-out affront, you know, to de- to destroy the union, uh, that's up for debate. I mean, the, the, there was not, there were no, there were no hidden agendas in 2019. We knew what were, uh, we knew what all the issues were. Uh, it was all on the table. And again, there was there was a, 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 a large part, a large function of democracy involved in that process. Many, many people had obviously come forward. Many saw encouraged. Many didn't because of the fear that you just uh, that you just described. Um, and uh, 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 come forward and said, uh, "We're not satisfied with the body that is uh, representing us at the bargaining table and in other places. And so we want to go through a process, a democratic process." Uh, to determine something better. And it, it was democratic, and it was free, and it was open, it was transparent, at least uh, on, on the side of the people in Fichonel, the people that I know. Um, so, you know, it's... Um it, it, it's it, it's a big argument as to whether or not there was something that uh, needed discipline uh, because of, of all these actions. But hey, look, uh, you know, the, you you made another point there, uh, alluded to another point that uh, uh, look, CNL, the CNL that exercise is now um, water under the table, if you will. Um, and I know it's oftentimes it's hard to wash away the personalities that get involved, but nevertheless. Uh, CNL is now uh, involved with a professional group of people that are all members of the uh, FFAW. And, uh, you know, it's not the intent of CNL to be adversaries. Uh, It's really the intent, and it should be the intent, of ultimately becoming partners in this. And when we look around and when we see the relationship between uh, professional people, whether it's professional nurses who would have another union represent them at the bargaining table or otherwise, it it all represents the same thing. And so if we're going to be proceeding at odds, and, you know, in this case, 2,400 card holders uh, that were involved with the exercise in 2019 weren't even allowed to nominate uh, anyone for that position, let alone uh, let alone uh, they've been eligible to, to vote on it. So it, it represents a serious uh, situation in, in our view. I appreciate the time. We will follow up the FFAW because, you know, these are broader conversations about eligibility, democracy, inclusion. There's a lot to this. You know, it might feel like a, a little in-house spat, but it's, I think, bigger than that. It's a larger conversation. But I appreciate the time this morning. Thanks a lot. 
Yeah, I'm glad you think so. Uh, thank you very much. Take care. All Bye-bye. Uh, let's try to stay on track with the breaks today. Uh, don't go away. When we come back, we're going to find out what fundamentalism is. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the Executive Director of Services and Prevention and Safety at the NL Sexual Assault Crisis and Prevention Center. That's Sandra McKellar. Good morning, Sandra. You're on the air. Uh, good morning. Thank you for getting in touch with us. Happy to do it. Listen, we speak to these issues when they pop up, even though we know they're constantly ongoing concerns. And this is about the PSA from the RNC regarding potential date rape attempts and people having their drinks spiked, notably in the bar setting. And more, many of these stories come from the downtown of St. John's. Well, at least that's where some of the focus is. It can happen anywhere. Yes. Just, I don't know how to start this, but... You know, the RNC have been taken to task by saying they're warning the perpetrators, and the perpetrators, if they're willing to do that, then they don't care what the RNC think. But the last time that the RNC put out a warning, it was more focused on the buddy system, keeping an eye on your drink and your friend's drink, people in the bar being aware, trying to keep an eye on each other, which came across and was portrayed as victim-blaming. How do you think we should craft the message? Because all anybody wants is for people to be safe. I think before I even start, this, the sad reality is that it's important for individuals to monitor their drinks, okay? And the reminders and the messages that are presented can be helpful that way. But a, a helpful sort of uh, intervention prevention approach is, is around collective care too. Rather than saying, do this or it's your fault, which sometimes is a message that comes across, just as frequently post and talk about it is le- illegal to do these things. And these are the consequences because hopefully it will make people who are engaging in those kind of behaviors think and acknowledge the grievous harm that they're doing. That is really important. Also, you know, at whenever possible to encourage, uh, you know, safe bar training, those kinds of things. But I think it's really important to, to focus on letting perpetrators know this is illegal and if this happens, you will be sort of taken to task by the law, and we are consistent in terms of how we do it. There is woeful underreporting for for these kind of incidences because the survivors, the victims, feel like they're blamed, they're held accountable, and sometimes the messages we give only socialize with people you know, with friends, with families. We also know that many of these incidences are perpetrated by individuals who the victim or the survivor knows. So I understand that. And so if we're all pulling the order into the same or the rope in the same direction and it's the collective good and looking out for everybody's safety as opposed to pointing fingers of blame at victims so everyone i think understands that mm-hmm. there's also a role to play for the bars and their staff so we know that there's a lot of drugs beyond the rehypnols of the world in the bar scene and this is not just here this is across the country around the world what would you like to see bar staff their owners their managers do here to provide a safe as safe as possible place for their patrons because they are the ones that by and large will be the most sober people in the bar they have the control of for instance they can get in trouble if they let you go and get behind the wheel so what kind of training and conversation and signage would you like to see bars implement here to create a further safer space? 
Okay, so for organizations uh, such as bars to participate in safe bar training, for anyone who has the capacity to do that, also to ensure that the signage indicates quite clearly the illegality of putting things in, in, in people's drinks. And for, in a sense, any kind of um, organization, whether it be the government or whoever, to encourage and fund organizations to a, take part in such training. Yeah, I mean, even just the, the message to include not only the illegality of what you're potentially going to do, but we're watching. You know, yeah. you know that, that message there, there's nothing quite like a presence of a watchful eye, whether that be law enforcement down to the barkeep or the manager or the owner to say not only are you doing something potentially illegal and evil, but we're watching and we're yeah. going to catch and you. And I, I think one of the things, too, sometimes people say, well, you know, I kind of thought, but I didn't know what to do. And I think this is where training can be helpful in terms of people obtaining strategies. If you notice something and you're kind of concerned, what do you do? How can you do it? Absolutely. Uh, before we run out of time, Sandra, there's also some of the stories that have been uh, surrounding the new crime severity index. And we know that there was going to be the distinct likelihood of an increase in sexual violence, whether it be domestic violence or otherwise, during the pandemic for a variety of reasons. And of course, we can add into that just how many people don't report for the reasons that you've spoken to here on this mm -hmm. program. So what can, what can you tell folks about not only what you can do at your center, but what we're seeing in those numbers? Okay. One of the things I think uh, we had sort of anticipated was that there would be a surge because some of the very um, strategies that were put in place to enhance health during COVID also became a breeding ground for further abuse, further sexual violence. At the center, we have the crisis support information line, but we also have text chat. And our text chat, uh, the numbers are, are limited in terms of when we have it because the, while the telephone is 24-7, text chat is on Mondays and Wednesdays from 2 to 8 p.m. and Fridays from 12 to 8 p.m. So it can be accessed by calling our 800 number, which is 1-800-726-7243. That's one. We also have, um, if someone would like to do in-person, but they would need to phone to make an appointment. For someone who is seeking support, seeking service, also looking at it in terms of what their options are from a legal standpoint, we are in an ongoing partnership with Public Legal Information of Newfoundland Labrador through the Journey Project and their office hours. So to go to our site or even email us at info at nsexualviolence.com or go to our website, which is www.nsexualviolence.com. We also have a presence on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter to reach out to us to get additional information. We really, truly are here to listen and help facilitate uh, the options in terms of when a survivor or a victim goes through, what do I do? We listen, but we also recognize it is their choice 
and we simply lay out what the options are and provide as much support as we can with the resources that we have available to us. Sandra, appreciate the work you do and the time you've offered us this morning. Thank you. You're very welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Sandra McKellar from the NL Sexual Assault Crisis and Prevention Center. Uh, Appreciate your patience. Bob, you're up next right after the break. Don't go away. Uh, Welcome back. Let's do it. Line number two. Bob, you're on the air. Uh, Yes, good morning. Morning to you. Uh, I'd like to describe uh, religious fundamentalism, Patty. That's quite a chore. I think if I can pull that off, I'd be doing well. Uh, it seems like it's a state of mind, uh, you know, the ability to believe the absurd. You know, they want everyone to believe what they believe. They don't understand, and they don't understand why you can't. I mean, how can you, what position do you get in to believe something if you don't believe it, in, you know, and it's not your nature to believe it? You don't have that state of mind or that fate they got. I don't think of it as a, as a gift. I think of it as a, as a curse almost, a fate. So I'm not going to put words in your mouth where you strive to define fundamentalism, but in basic terms, it's a strict, literal interpretation of Scripture, pretty much. Is that how you refer to it as well, Bob? That's, that's exactly. I describe it the same way sometimes. Okay. But uh, I'm an agnostic, uh, personally, and I I believe in an answer, but I don't know what it is. And atheism is the other extreme. I think agnosticism is the the right course, you know. It's the right one for you. Pardon? It's the right one for you. No, but there there is only one right, Patty. You know, you can't say uh, I... Me and you would agree to disagree at all for, you know, there is right and there is wrong. And that's the danger. If you don't accept that religion can be wrong and it can do harm. It can. And history shows that quite clearly. Pardon? History shows that to be true quite clearly. Yes. And uh, you take of a foster child, of a troubled child is put in a foster home. And uh, the people there are, are religious fundamentalists, and they try to impose all their stuff on this child and won't allow her to express her illness properly. And what chance of that child got? She's gonna whatever she chance she had in the beginning. She's after losing it. She's gonna gonna be made worse. And they can do that. Trying to impose. I mean, that's the whole basis of everything that's going on now. The Catholic Church is one of the strongest branches of uh, Catholicism. They, all the things they believe, their their priests are divine, and you know, all the all the catastrophes in the past are, are, are caused uh, by God's punishment on the, because we we don't believe and we're being immoral. I mean. I don't know, Patty, I'm losing it now, but I was on a roll there for a while. You know, you won't go to heaven if you don't worship God, you know. I don't know, I wouldn't want to miss the bus or be late for the bus when it's gone. Uh, The Catholic Church lately, though, has taken a lot of hits. And to me, the sale of the Catholic Church is, I think, is a good thing, really. 
because the priests uh, controlled the outports in the old days. Um, any sane person want to go back to that? And, you know, it's like having the Taliban take over, and you know, so it happens all over the world. Not quite. The Taliban try to impose on their people. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I think I get the point you're trying to make, but I don't think they're the same thing. You're not going to face a persecution in terms of death at the hands of a for the various, the, for the vast majority of someone who's a fundamentalist, to use your word, following whatever religion that we're talking about. Yep. Uh, yeah, I don't think I can add any more, Pat. I think I said what I'm trying to say. That's fine. I appreciate the time, Bob. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, let's get another one in before the news. Sure. Let's go. Line number four. Sam, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Penny. How are you today? Couldn't be better. How are you doing? Oh, not so bad at all. Penny, I'm on the Route 235 I'm on the road going to Bonavista. And, man, i never seen this road as bad, I'd say, in about 40 years for potholes this year. I'm stopped here by one now. And it's the whole wet of the car when you go through it. And it's probably about, uh, I'd say, eight, nine inches deep. It's been like this for the whole summer here. Every time I come down here, uh, finally, they just, uh, I think uh, in a couple of days ago, they put a, a marker up by it saying that was a pothole there, right where it was big. And uh, they don't even have a bit of asphalt around their uh, depot or anything to fill in. That's just one hole because that's a, a big one. And for people that live in here in the area that know that that hole is there, but when we had people come through here all the summer and still coming through, uh, there was more tires, more rims broke up there in that pothole than you could shake a stick at. Now, it's really shameful for one of the main roads like this coming down through to be in such a state from... Uh, I would say from Plate Cove down to Bonavista is uh, it's horrible. You know, I talked to some tourism coming through here and things, and they just can't get over the state of the road down here. No. Well, the locals, I mean, you know full well as a listener of this program, I hear about road conditions all the time. I'm happy to talk about it. But this year, I don't know if it was because of all the emphasis on come home here or whatever, I can't even tell you how many uh, tourists have contacted us directly, and a couple of them have been willing to come on the air. Their number one concern, now they try to couch it by saying the people are lovely, the province is lovely, but the roads are deplorable, and they're not wrong. Oh, no, definitely not, especially down this way. And where I got my place, so down here around the bay, going out Tickle Cove, that's Road 230, there's hardly a bit of pavement left out that way at all, right? No, but the the main road, I know right now there's not a whole lot of money to go around right now, but at least let's try to keep our main roads up. No. So that's the message I just wanted to get out there this morning because the uh, potholes are filled with the water here this morning and you can't really uh, know how deep some of the potholes are, right? And uh, I know several people that after losing their rims and things like that right in their tires, it's 
I think they really got to take a big look at the, the road coming down through. You know, if you're going to promote uh, tourism, uh, let's give them something to drive on, for love of God. <laughs> no argument here. Sam, you make an important point on the rainy mornings. It makes it even that much more treacherous when you have no idea what you're coming upon. So you might have rain across the highway. You might not even see the pothole, or if you do, you don't know whether it's going to be an inch deep or six inches deep. So that's, that's something people need to be mindful of on these wet mornings for sure. Oh, that's exactly. And Patty, I'd like to thank you for taking the call. And great job. Keep up the good work. Appreciate the time yeah, this morning. Thanks a lot. Okay, Sam. All right. All righty. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, how are we doing out there, David? Standard questions. Uh, keep it coming on the Twitter box. Some interesting content floating through there. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address open on VOCM.com. My faves when you join us live on the air. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line four. Angela, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. How are you today? Grand today. Thanks. How about you? Oh, I'm good, thanks. Um, I'm just calling to give people a heads up in case they don't realise um, things have changed. I didn't realise uh, in terms of your uh, provincial ID and driving licence, but it's the same form and the same procedure no matter what you're applying for. Um, I foolishly let mine lapse. I thought it was um, it was going to run out in June, and in, fa- in, and in fact it had run out in May, so that was my own fault. Anyway, so I, you know, I duly made an appointment online, and that takes about three weeks to get an appointment. So that's the first thing I'd like to alert people to. You know, if it's about to run out, you might want to make your appointment now um the other thing is i then go in there you know i go through all the procedure and everything else and i'm handed a slip of paper and i said well what's this she said oh that's your temporary id i said what she said oh yeah we mail it to you I'm like okay so i thought this was really weird because that didn't used to happen usually you just have to take a seat and in about five or ten minutes and hand it to you so i was talking to another lady who had recently applied for her driving license and went through the same thing and she had asked them you know what was going on and apparently now they send the information to Ontario and the cards are, I guess, printed there and sent back. So to me, that seems absolutely bizarre. Um, I mean, it's something that we always did in Newfoundland, we're well capable of doing because they were doing it for years. And now it seems like we're farming it out to somewhere else. And there's a delay now because, of course, that meant essentially it was about, well, it was just over five weeks, I guess, from me you know, applying to get to get it and actually having it in my hand. Um, and I don't think it's, it's, it's a secure either. I mean, it's just sent through the regular mail. You don't have to sign for it or anything. So if you're somebody like me who lives in a high-traffic area uh, where your mail box is regularly rifled through, you know, you look at, you're looking at a risk of identity theft as well. To me, that seems incredibly inefficient. And it seems like it's costing more because surely to, you know, for them to mail it out, there's a cost involved in that, of course. But it doesn't seem to make any sense to me, Paddy. And I mean, I didn't realise things had changed, and it's weird because I'm all over the news every day. Like, I mean, I've got about six news apps on my phone, and, you know, I do a deep dive into the news every day because that's just what I'm interested in. And if I didn't know, I guess there's lots of people out there who didn't do that, you know, change past them by. But I think it's a good idea to let people know that it's going to take longer. And also, I'm a bit confused about why, why on earth we're now doing this and farming it out to somewhere else. 
It's a good question. So there's a bunch of different issues where there's one site in one province that does all the printing, like a passport, for instance. But inside yeah. of this ID world and driver's licenses and what have you, I'm told, because I've asked this question in the past, that provinces cooperated to bulk buy or to bulk order, so consequently save money versus doing the printing themselves here because of some of the enhanced security measures that are now implemented in passports, money, uh, driver's licenses, all those types of things. So yeah. I've never been able to get anyone to provide me actual numbers numbers which would be helpful as opposed to just telling me it's less expensive yeah. but yeah you know the the mail is potentially if you still get door-to-door -door service anyone can reach in your mailbox so that is a potential risk for sure versus like i use a super mailbox so mine's probably okay yeah. uh, but they're fair concerns and you want to get out in front of it it's unfortunate that, you know, they, they used to send out all kinds of reminders, right? That yeah. now that your registration on your vehicle has run out. Now, you can get an email reminder or you can put it in your own smartphone and give yourself a reminder to reapply, driver's license, registration, or whatever the case may be. But those are helpful heads up that you're giving us this morning. Yeah, thank you. And I mean, I, in fairness to them, I did get an email. I'd missed it because yep. I'm not in my Hotmail account very often. I don't have Wi-Fi at home. So, I mean, they had sent me, a, you know, a notice that it had run out. So that, you know, as I said, that, that bit of a delay from me making the appointment was my own fault for not reading the email. But it was the other part of it that really concerned me more. But anyway, just okay. that was all, you know, I really wanted to you just give people a heads up. But it's going to take longer than you think now. So you might want to get up ahead of it, right? Appreciate the time this morning, Ange. Thanks a lot. Take care, buddy. You too, Angela. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye. Okay, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to one of the organizers of Street Jam, an annual road hockey tournament coming up this Labor Day weekend. They're going to be playing at the Confederation Building. It's a street hockey extravaganza. Join us on line one with Jack Lee. Jack, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Not too bad, I suppose. How are you doing? I'm good. I can't complain. Like like most people, living living a dream of uh, what we went through the last two years and Hopefully we'll get back to some normalism and, you know, us, myself and Seamus have been doing this event for many, many years and finally we'll get the opportunity to be able to do it again this, this year. Yeah, it's a good laugh. Uh, I've played in one. Just before we get into Street Jam, uh, Jack, I want to offer you some, uh, my congratulations on the Hockey Canada Atlantic Region's Order of Merit. Well done. Thanks, Patty. I really appreciate that and it's certainly nice to be recognized for stuff you do as a volunteer. And you've done many things yourselves and volunteers, and you know what I mean. Uh, another one before we get into Street Champ, Mark, your son. Mark yeah, is now the yeah. assistant coach of the St. John Sea Dogs, the defending Memorial Cup champions, joining fellow Newfoundlander Labradorian Travis Crickard, who's the head coach. Way to go, Mark. Yes, he's he's excited and he's looking for looking forward to the challenge and certainly looking forward to bringing his experience at pro hockey for many, many years throughout many, many countries in the world. And certainly, hopefully, he can do make make this happen for other people that are coming through as, as he did in, when he was a young boy. Yeah, he was a fine player. Okay, let's yeah. get into some street jam. Coming up on Labor Day, what do people need to know? Well, it's, it's you know, it's an event that we've ran for many years and, and this year we're, you know, with, with things that's going on in other places, so the, the cities around, uh, that we, we couldn't do it. And so we were lucky enough and fortunate enough to secure the Confederation Hill for Labor Day weekend. And this is for all ages and boys and girls to play a bit of fun weekend. And uh, certainly... Have some fun uh, playing the game, you know, not on ice, but certainly on on pavement. And uh, it's always been a great event. It's not only about the hockey, it's about the event itself. And it's, it's just get people out, Pat. Patty, and, you know, as you know, what we've gone through the last number of years, like 
you know, kids just need to be get out and have some fun, and hopefully the weather will be like it has been for the last couple of months, the same uh, that weekend. Yeah, let's get into some of the fun rules and others. But you know, the one of the bullet points in the email that Seamus sent me was about road hockey players aren't intimidated by ice hockey players. And let me tell you, when we were growing up, we actually played in a real organized street hockey league, and some of the finest players, the Bobby Dawsons and Shiner Johnson and Fran and uh, CC Fowler and the boys, they didn't play ice hockey, but they were the best street hockey players. So that's a fun part of it is that just because you're not playing on the AAA team doesn't mean you can't have a blast and compete and maybe win street jam. A lot of these, a lot of the people who participate in this don't play ice hockey, yeah. believe it or not, but it also introduces them to the game of hockey and maybe they will play ice hockey and so it's just good for everybody but that you're right, 100%, a lot of the good players that you know and you mentioned a few of their names there that were probably some of the best ball hockey players in the country. Uh, you know, from Newfoundland Labrador, certainly didn't play ice hockey either. You know, and they they they, they not only bought a lot of fun to it, but bought a lot of competition to it. Yeah, let me throw Frankie Etman in that uh, that pile as well. <laughs> you better not forget no one else, Patty. Oh, I'm, listen, I'm bound to get a bunch of texts now after. Okay, so you don't need a whole lot in the way of equipment. You need a stick. The teams can range from four players to nine players. You only get to have three plus a goalie on the floor or on the on the uh, court or on the pavement at the one time. So where do people go to register their team? When's the deadline to register for this year's Street Jam? The deadline is is August 29th, and uh, they can go on our website, Street Jam, and uh, you know, and then they will get a notice, you know, what what time to be there and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, like the, you know, the, we're going to be taking teams right up to the 29th of August, and hopefully we'll get uh, lots of teams, boys and girls, to play. And we have categories of all ages, and and you know, it's a fun event. You know, we will have some other stuff around around this event, and the, the fencing will be put up, and all the courts will be size the same, and you know, naturally it'll be it'll be the amount of people that will be there will be unbelievable. You know, we've we've been doing this for a long while, so. We don't expect any different in regards to the crowds and the amount of teams that we get. Yeah, ages, genders, and skill levels. Uh, so it's a pretty open field. It's $50 yeah. per player plus HST for the entire week. And you get a minimum of three games. You get the T-shirt. Uh, there's prizes for the first and second place teams. And then, of course, the last bullet, the cheese of it all, memories of a lifetime. 100%. I agree. 100%. Thanks a lot, Jack. Yeah. Good luck with it. Thanks, Patty. You too. Bye. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about the cup. Which cup? The Stanley Cup. And also, Monica Walsh. We've got something to talk about. A dramatic interactive out of the Cupid Center. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Well, would you like to have a historic, yet fictional, and insightful exploration of Cupid's from 1610 to the mid-20th century? You can do exactly that with a live, interactive experience at the Cupid's Legacy Center with A Place to Call Home, Living Heritage at Cupid's. One of the actors involved has joined us on line number four. That's Monica Walsh. Good morning, Monica. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Could not be better. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. So we had you in the queue yesterday. Time got away from us. We apologize for that, but welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Tell us about a place to call home. Well, we're having a great time out here in at the Cupid's Legacy Center in Cupid's. And um, this show, A Place to Call Home, Living Heritage at Cupid's, um, it's a wonderful historical reenactment um, of a short uh, script that's about an hour long, written by Trudy Morgan Cole. 
And it's about the history of Cupids and the history of the, which was the first English settlement in North America. Um, and we, as actors, we're wearing historical costumes, and we take you through the museum, um, telling you stories and uh, memories that we have about our time in Cupids. And, of course, Trudy Morgan Cole is absolutely tremendous. And this is a partnership yeah. with their very own uh, theater, the theater company, Perchance. Yeah. So great stuff. Give us, and I mean, we talk about the history of Cupids. Mm-hmm. Rich, to say the least, well beyond. John Guy's first colony there. Give people a sneak peek of what they'll see and experience if they attend. Well, it's just, so my character, Catherine Guy, I came over, my character came over in 1612. So it was 1610 that John Guy came over here and founded that first colony. So Catherine Guy, my character, came over in 1612. And um, she, uh, so she takes them through those those first years. And then we meet, um, so we talk about how the hardships and the, the triumphs and all that kind of thing and all the, the different uh, elements there. Then we go on to the 1800s. So we'll meet one of my uh, uh, descendants, Sam Rowe. So he um, talks about life in the 1800s. So he's more talking about, you know, the fishery and the sealing and things like that. And, and for instance, the water witch disaster, which happened out in Pooch Cove, um, but has connections to Cupid's, that's mentioned there. And that's really fascinating. And then we go on to um, Sam's granddaughter, Louisa. Um, and she is in the 1940s. So she's talking about a slightly more modern um, spin on things, but really tying it all together. So you really get a a large history of Cupids from like 1610 right up until like, you know, the only like 50 years ago. So it's really interesting. Is the interactive component simply being able to flow through the museum with the actors or is there more to the interactivity? Well, it's kind of nice. I mean, we're, you know, we're standing right next to you and we're telling you, you know, we're telling you memories and things like that. And so you can ask us questions and things like that. Now, some people prefer just to listen, which is great, too. And but some people will, you know, they want to chat with us and and that possibility is there, which is really nice. And and it's more of a it's interactive in the sense that rather than, you know, going to a play and sitting down and watching actors on stage, you're moving through it with us. And um, we're talking to you as actors as if, you know, we are experiencing this right now. So we've had a lot of people tell us, like, it really brings it alive, you know? It's a really exciting way to, like, learn about history and just a little bit more, um, a little bit more alive because we're, they're watching actors reenact it. Sounds fun. And not to pump tires too hard, but Trudy, I think, can be considered an expert in the historical uh, context of Cupid's and the four centuries people have been living there. I think she's wrote a couple of novels about, about the place. She has, which are amazing. So the first, um, the first novel, Roll the Bones, um, is sort of beginning with the, the tale, um, a Roll the Bones, Trudy Morgan Cole. So she's written the Cupid's trilogy. Now, the third book is not out yet. It's coming out uh, 2023. But the first two books, Roll the Bones, and I don't have the second one in front of me right now, but the first two books are here at the Cupid's. Legacy Center, and you can get them all over Newfoundland, and they're really fascinating. And I'm currently almost on the first one. It's really, really good. It's about it's about us coming over in 1610 and, and all the, ex- the amazing things that happened. So it's a really amazing book. And Trudy also. Um, she wants to give voice to the 16 women who John Guy brought over in the second year because back then women's names weren't written down. So, for instance, we don't actually know their names, like the, the woman who gave birth to the first English baby in North America, who I play as Catherine Guy. But it's been 
she had to sort of invent, like, sort of fill in the holes because when it came to women, there wasn't a whole lot of um, history made. So that's been really interesting, too, like uh, that part of the script and the part that, that women, <clears throat> you know, played in the um, – just helping the colony and keeping things going. It's been a real pleasure. When you do a period piece, I'm always fascinated with the folks who are able to come up with the costumes and dress the actors. Who can you, what can you tell us about that and who's behind it? Well, it was like a, we all, <laughs> it was like very much a labor of love because sometimes, you know, it can be, it can be difficult, but we're really lucky because, you know, between the Cupid's Legacy Center and Perchance Theater, so this is a co-production between the uh -huh. Legacy Center and Perchance, and, you know, Perchance, they do period shows all the time, so they have had, um, <clears throat> there's various costume designers and things like that, and we um, we actually got a, a lend of a period costume. We're working with some people who are who've done some things with Shakespeare by the Sea and things like that. So for my character, 1610, we have a, um, a a beautiful period piece that just needed you know we just needed to like fit it to my body and stuff like that. But it's uh, it's big and heavy, <laughs> so it kind of makes me feel like can you imagine wearing this? But they did, they did. I can't imagine a hot summer day in a petticoat. No, I can't. <laughs> okay, so it opened on the 14th of July. It runs to September of the 4th. Mm -hmm. There's three shows daily, one at 11 a.m., one at yes. 1 p.m., one at 3 p.m. The cost is a very interesting number, $8.65, HST <laughs> included. <laughs> if you want more information, you can contact the Cupid's Legacy Center directly. Uh, Claudine is the manager. Her email address is an easy one. It's claudine at cupidslegacycenter.ca. I have the contact on hand if you want to get in touch with me so I can provide it to you. Anything else quickly before we say goodbye? I just want to say also that if there's something happens, we, we run Wednesday to Thursday, uh, Wednesday through Sunday. If you can't, if you can only come on a Monday or Tuesday, everyone who works here at the Cupid's Legacy Center is amazing. And even if you don't get the theatrical tour, you will get an amazing museum tour. So I recommend it to everyone who can come out here to this beautiful center. Nice to have you on the show this morning, Monica. Thank you. Thank you so much, Patty. Have a great day. You too. Break a leg. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, uh, let's keep rolling. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to His Worship, the mayor of the city of St. John's. As Danny Breen. Mayor Breen, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. How are you? Grand. How about you, sir? I'm doing very well, thanks. Okay, so Monday's the big day. Uh, right off the bat, your staff, I haven't had much to do with this, but your staff have been really great on this front, Aaron and others. So congratulations to everyone at the city, Nikki Vinicum, the Newhook family for doing what they're doing. The parade is going to be huge. Yeah, it's, it's a great opportunity to, uh, to celebrate um, Alex's accomplishments. And, you know, he, he's not only his professional accomplishments, but the way he works within the community and the community-minded spirit he has. So it's a really uh, great opportunity for us, and we're glad that the family was able to give us a couple of hours out of a very, very busy schedule to, uh, to let the residents of the city um, know how much we appreciate what he's done. Yeah, I've seen his schedule. It's absolute madness. So there's a lot of work that goes into it, not just permits and insurance, but there's a lot of people that needed a lot of things attended to. So what are you looking forward to the most? For me, just to even see the smiles on the faces of those who are on the parade route, and you're absolutely right, Alex's community-minded spirit was it was quite evident in Denver. He was recognized for it there, and he's followed through with that here in his home province. So that's a big part of this as well. But what are you looking forward to? I'm looking forward to the opportunity to seeing everybody along the parade route who are so proud of uh, of Alex 
uh, you know, making our way down to the pedestrian mall and then up to George Street. I think it's going to be a, a great site and uh, and a great uh, great booster for the city. I think people in the city, we've been through the past uh, couple of years, have been have been really tough, and uh, we need things that are uh, that are really good stories and good things to get behind and feel good about. And uh, this is definitely one of them. A hundred percent. How's it going to work logistically? Because, like, say for instance, the Santa Claus Parade would be road closures throughout. I think this is more of a rolling closure. So, what do you want the potential patrons? to know about where to go, what to look out for, parking, and all those little moving parts. Yeah, so if you go to our website, you can see all the parking opportunities there. You can see the parade route. Uh, you can take the uh, shuttle. We'll be leaving the Village Mall parking lot beginning at 12.30, running to 2 o'clock. Uh, so you would use the Hamlin Road entrance, so that would be the north parking lot in, in the back, as we call it. The um, And then uh, the buses will start returning uh, at the end of the event, uh, in front of the convention center. So the drop-offs in front of the convention center, people can make their way down to George Street or get along the parade route and, uh, and join in. And, of course, there's going to be a lot of money raised throughout the day uh, for the real program, which, you know, it's just one of those side benefits and just, I think, goes on to exemplify where Alex's head is as well. Yeah, and we're also going to have a, a truck from the Community Food Sharing Association uh, in, along the parade uh, taking uh, donations as well and, uh, you know, gives everybody an opportunity to uh, to to support the, the community. So uh, it's going to be a great day and uh, we're really looking forward to uh, to seeing a great crowd out there. And the real program, just to break down the acronym, is Recreation Experiences and Leisure. So to make sure there's opportunities for children and youth who have a financial need to get involved. So that's what the real program is, if people didn't know. Uh, just very quickly, uh, I know Sandy Hickman is the uh, council lead on the upcoming Canada Summer Games where we're going to host in 25. We know how well we're doing out of Niagara. There are some questions about infrastructure. Can you give us an update where we are? The two notable concerns would be the pool and the track. Yeah, so the pool and the track are both issues that are that are being uh, dealt with now. Uh, the pool, um, the province and the university are working together on, on what uh, improvements need to be made to the, uh, to the Aqua Arena and uh, that work is ongoing. And uh, we're in the we're into the finalization of the uh, of the track and field uh, facility. So those issues are, uh, are are ongoing, and hopefully we'll have something soon uh, to to announce on uh, on both those fronts. The um, we are in a in a good position that we have uh, a lot of facilities that are available that will require minor upgrades. Uh, that have been well maintained and invested in over the years. So we're in good shape going in, but you'll see now uh, this fall, you'll see more announcements in that area. I look forward to it, and I'll see you at the parade, Mayor Breen. Okay, Patty, thanks very much. Have a great weekend. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Here we go. It's Danny Breen, the mayor of town. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Chief Jason Benoit. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Chief. Welcome to the show. Thank you. First time caller. Fantastic. Love that. Absolutely. What's on your mind this morning? Well, I wanted to call because uh, we've been uh, running a food bank now since the uh, since the well, the advent of the the uh, COVID nineteen pandemic, and I uh, just wanted to make sure people out there remember uh, realize that we're here to help. 
what happened is during the pandemic, you know, seniors and, and families were isolated at home and the costs were going up. And so there was a food security issue and we decided the best way to do that was to open a food bank. I know there was one that was open in Port-au-Port this year in January, I believe. And yours, is this the one of the Mi'kmaq Centre Cape St. George? That's the one. Okay. So what do you see? Yeah. Because we're hearing stories right around the entire country, certainly in this province, with the numbers of people that are seeing and people who are looking to food banks or turning to food banks for the first time ever. What's your experience been out at your food bank? Uh, it's, it's getting very good usage. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great need and, and greater need than we, than we thought. I mean, and the, the nearest food bank uh, is in Stephenville, and you know, Stephenville does a pretty uh, a lot of uh, serves a lot of people as well. And uh, we, you know, we saw the need, and, and the need is there. We're getting great usage, and we look after 15 communities as well, right? So it's uh, it's great. I mean, we open every Friday. I just want to let people know between uh, nine and, and noon, and, uh, and anybody. We go by households. You know, we don't care if they're seniors and low-income families, young families. Don't, we don't care what the, what the makeup is. If there is a need. They can come to the food bank and, and get a hamper. And they come every eight weeks. And that's kind of uh, the, the standard. And we kind of follow the uh, Food Sharing Association standard practices. How are you making it happen, Chief? Because, you know, individuals and families are also, you know, times are tight. Whether it be cost of living and inflation and the price of groceries. I know you can probably stretch a dollar more than I can as an individual. But how are you filling up the cupboards and the cabinets and the fridges at your food bank? Well, you know, we're doing it with uh, with uh, non-perishables at the, at the moment. So, you know, okay. all your all your staples, uh, we're not into the you know frozen products yet, but we're planning on adding that soon. Uh, so, you know, it's all your your, your canned stuff and your bottles and, and your boxes. You know, your cereal, breakfast cereals and canned beans and and you know all those sort of things, the jams and peanut butter and noodles and and uh, you know tuna and all all those basic things. Uh, milk and 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 all that sort of stuff or pancake mix and all your stuff that your families would normally use but uh and, and those stuff you know, they last longer too you know so that's the kind of stuff that we're sticking with at the moment when we get some fridges in the future we'll add you know some frozen products like some of the other food bags have like sure and things like that eh? and we and know that too oh sorry sorry i apologize no, sorry, no, it's actually, I was going to say they're looking for that too. They're looking for, you know, uh, ground beef and chicken and things like that. They're all fish and you know. And there's also a new program available to food banks in the province, access to country food, in this case, moose. So people can get a license, make donations through a, a, a registered and approved uh, abattoir or butcher to put some moose meat in hand. So I would imagine that would be an attractive option for you folks as well. Absolutely. We did uh, put an application in for that as well. Good to have you on the show, Chief, as a first-time caller. We know that it's good that volunteers and organizations have taken on the initiative and put the effort in to open up food banks. It's also a real shame that so many people rely, sometimes in full, on a food bank. Uh, anything else you want to offer this morning before we say goodbye, Chief? No, I just want to let people know, you know, don't be shy. Come come to the food bank if you need it, and uh, and we're here to help. You know, we offer other services as well uh, at our McDonough Center, and we're here to help. And there's no greater reward than helping people. You're here. Good to have you on, Chief. Good luck. Thanks. Bye-bye. All the best. Bye-bye. It's Jeff, Jason Benoit, Chief of the Benoit First Nation Band. Uh, let's roll. Line number three, Gerald, you're on the air. Yes, uh, Patrick, uh, this is Gerald. Uh, I just wanted to talk about uh, Sisters of Mercy there, who had uh, orphanage there behind Brother Royce. Certainly, you know, it's Restel. I do so. Yes, sir. 
Yeah, and anyway, I was up uh, in the country with my uh, sister, and anyway, she got a friend, and I'll tell you this one now, she got the same name as her friend, and her husband got the same name as her man. Okay. But anyway, uh, the reason why I call she, we got talking about Mount Castle first, but then all of a sudden, basically she interrupted me or whatever, I didn't mind that. And she said she was in that orphanage, and she said when she was in there, there was uh, eight beds in the one room, and the nuns went and uh, turned around. They used to beat them, smack them, scrap them, ball at them. Not enough to even change their clothes, say, regards to that. But anyway, and when she was telling me that, I couldn't believe what she was saying, right? There's a lot of other stuff she said, but I won't say, right? Okay. Quite a shocking, though. Some of those stories are are just simply horrific, you know. Uh, now, the Sisters of Mercy would have been doing ministries in prisons, and they had a bunch of home visitation programs and those types of things. They're still here, is my understanding. I think the Sisters of Mercy are up on Waterford Bridge Road somewhere at okay. this point. No orphanage or anything, of course. No. But, yeah, these... <clears throat> These double-sided stories and double-edged swords are part and parcel of, you know, what we're learning from history and any good work that any organization has done. Sometimes and far too often, these types of stories are also part of it. Yes, uh, that's cool, yes. But uh, uh, hey, that's what gets me, boy. Now, say, like, okay, uh, the boys in Mount Castle, okay, the, the church is going to get give them money, say, for the torture they put on crew, right? Now, just say now, okay, Sisters of Mercy. Okay, say now the girls that was there, what was done to them, would they be able to go to either other, uh, how can I put it, uh, uh, Sister uh, Mercy? Can they, can they join up for a lawsuit similar to Mount Cashel? Is that where we're going? Yes, that's exactly right. Okay. Uh, short answer is I don't know. But first no, things no, first things first, I suppose, to establish a class, uh, to seek legal representation. Like, for instance, one of the names in that, that world, whether it be Lisa Moore or Jeff Budden, who is representing the Mount Cashel victims. So I guess that's what it would take is for those who are residents at the orphanage to come together, to look for a lawyer and see what next steps are. I wouldn't know what to say beyond that, to be honest, Gerald. No. Well, I'll tell you this one, too, now. That was certain, you know, sort of, too, uh, the nuns say they had uh, uh, a building there right behind St. Pons Forum there. Yeah. And they even had, they even had a graveyard there. Right? I didn't know about the graveyard, but I'm aware of the building behind St. Pons Forum, yeah. Yeah, there, there is a graveyard there in the meantime. Oh. Right when, when the nuns say retired from what they were at, they went into this home, say, put it that way. And... Uh, Certainly, they had to be fed and everything else like that, and the funerals or whatever. And that's what I was wondering who paid for that, sir? I have no earthly idea. No, nor me, boy. No. I just don't know. No, well, that's all right, uh, Patty. Uh, uh, I'm going to call you back again now next week. <laughs> okay. <laughs> when I played soccer <laughs> with the London Lions. You played soccer with the London Lions? Yeah, that's the, and they uh, sponsored us through uh, London, New York, and Paris. And, nice. and I, as far as I know, I'm the first president played on the Roman Catholic team. And a matter of fact, I married a Roman Catholic. And I met all the boys, you know, played with the boys. Uh, you were Houghton, 
and we always used to we had nicknames and, and Patty Evans was our coach and like I say we used to have nicknames you call me Dudley <laughs> and did there's another fellow play with us uh, Gary Conley's name was used to call him Squid he, he played with St. John's Caps too yeah I know another Squid Squid Squires also played for the Caps yeah that's right yeah Oh, yes, and Bruce Lucas. There, there was a lot of them, right? That way. And there was a, a fellow that played with the Feelings, and he left the Feelings, and he went and joined in the say that way, right? And anyway, I used to play soccer with your boys, see, on the street I lived in the center of town. And he said, uh, uh, Gerald, uh, they won't have to call you for the soccer team for London Lions. I said, that'd be no good to me. He said, why? I said, well, I'm not, I'm not a Catholic. Oh, he said, don't be so foolish. So what we'll have a, a practice up to the Teen uh, Gardens up there. And anyway, sure enough, after we done the, the try and make the team, and anyway, Patty said, it's going to be in the evening telegram tomorrow or next day. So anyway, that was all right. Uh, we went down, we got the paper, and anyway, me buddy Dougie's name was Wayland. I don't mind saying that because he had a couple of brothers anyway on that. But anyway, he turned around, he went through the pages and found who made the team there. And I said, you made the team? Oh, yes, he said. I said, hello, mate. Oh, yes, he said, you made the team? I said, go away, you I couldn't believe it. So did it have a big P after your name for Protestant? Pardon? <laughs> Sorry. That was a terrible question. Uh, Gerald, I appreciate making time, and I appreciate the story, the soccer story as well. Yes, it's good enough. I really appreciate it. Anytime. Stay in touch. Yes, and then we'll give you a, a shout back next week about another story about Mount Cashel, a man I wouldn't make. Okay. Okay, and thanks very much, Patty, for your time. Have a nice weekend, Gerald. And you too. Okay, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, there we go. Uh, just very quickly before we get to the break, I want to say good luck to our track and field athletes who are in a bunch of the A finals at the Canada Summer Games today. Corey Hicks is competing in the 100-meter uh, uh, women's race. Then there's the 4x100 women's relay team in the A final. Shay de Lavat. Le, how do I say that? Shay de Lavat in the women's javelin. Chris Cody and Donovan Chubb are in the men's shot put. They're in the A-finals today. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two. Keith, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you doing? I'm okay this morning. How about you? Well, not too bad. Just, uh, you know, as always, concerned with the COVID situation. And uh, announcement yesterday that uh, the chief medical health officer uh, said she can't mandate masks unless there's a health emergency. And that's uh, incorrect. So just wanted to voice my concern with that and the messaging that's been coming out of our leadership as of late uh, in regards to COVID. Yeah, no, I think insofar as authority for mandates or what have you, if what she says is actually part of how she's supposed to operate in her offices, then I would wonder aloud how Memorial University imposed their own mask mandate. Well, exactly. I mean, it's just... Um, this this messaging of you know we're never going to have mandates again no matter what kind of thing because that's sort of how a lot of people i know took it uh is very concerning i mean uh we just hit 200 deaths in uh 2022 which is 10 times more than we had uh 
the two years combined of the pandemic. So this whole pretend game of COVID's over and everything's fine is, is really getting tiresome, uh, especially for people. Uh, I know a lot of people who are, you know, have medical issues, are immunocompromised, like the whole, you know, the list uh, of, of things that, uh, you know, would require them to have enhanced sort of uh, safety measures whenever they're out in public or whatever. And they're all being met with the, well, you can wear a mask if you want to. However, you know, that's like, you know, one one of the dance partners is wearing shoes and the other one isn't. You're not really going to win the dance contest, right? So um, it's very concerning when we're getting messaging like that. And, uh, and it's completely, you know, it's, it's not accurate. Uh, I mean, uh, not to say, she, you know, she's lying or anything, but w- when you're, when the leader of your, you know, pandemic response tells you, well, there's nothing I can do, my hands are tied, that's a pretty, you know, a pretty large passing of the, the responsibility. And, the, you know, it, it just sends such a message to people that, you know, there's nothing we can do. Uh, when there is, I mean, it's, it's false. It's not... You know, she can implement uh, mask mandates to protect the public. That is well within her scope. It's written in the Newfoundland Health Act. And, uh, yeah, just that messaging is very, very concerning, especially since we're heading back into schools right now. And, you know, like I said, we just hit that milestone of 200 deaths in uh, since January, which is super concerning to me. I mean, that's 200 people. I know people are brushing that off like, well, you know, and then they're they're starting with the whole what are their comorbidities, how old are they, and all of that jazz. But I'm not listening to that either. Um, it, it's just very concerning that that's the messaging coming from our leadership. The the sentiment for people who are like-minded uh, is that it's not that the pandemic is over. It's that some public health authorities have just given up on it. I mean, I guess that's kind of the, the angle you're coming at. Let me push some of the issues that people will speak to quite frequently about any of these uh, additional protections, layers of protections, recommendations, mandates, is masks. Masks don't work. I don't know how many times I've ever seen a news story or an individual post anything about a mask, and if there's 50 replies, 40 of them are masks don't work. Yeah, for sure. I mean, how I would... Uh how I would approach that one is, while in the first two years of the pandemic, we had a record low of cold flu, all of the respiratory viruses that go around. I mean, uh, you know, if, if that's not proof that masks work, uh, you know, also since we have ended our mask mandates and our public safety measures and everything else, we've seen, uh, you know, a, a rise in uh, all of those things. So right now we have a, a shortage of children's medicine countrywide because so many kids are sick in the middle of the summer and this you know if you can't make the connection that it correlates with having no rules and no masking and no you know uh, you know that's that's a pretty obvious you know side effect if you took away all the rules and now everybody's sick but before when the rules were intact everybody wasn't sick i mean it's a pretty logical deduction right so the one that I use, and look, I, I will be more than willing to take my smacks. The one that I use that, uh, boy, there's a couple of people who, they're, they're constantly back and forth about these types of measures, even though, uh, anyway, the one that I've uh, used, and I'll get your thoughts on it, and of course people will oppose this as well, and fine. For sure. Some of the mandates that are put in place, when they are removed, it's not just about the mask. 
I've said that it does indeed, at some point, even if it just seeps into your subconscious, it also becomes a little bit part of your mindset. If yeah. all if things are taken away, it gives people the sense that there is absolutely nothing to be concerned with, to think about, to be aware of anymore. Why? Because public health has lifted measures. So a mindset, like if the mask mandate was in place, would you be more likely to go to the house party on Friday night versus when the mask mandate is not in place? I think no matter people subconsciously think of it, when you see things go away, you think, well, that's it. There's nothing left for me to consider. If I'm invited to this or I want to go to a movie or a party or a whatever, then I'm going to because there's no mandates in place. I don't know if that's real, but I think it is. Well, I mean, from the psychological perspective, if, you know, if they take away the don't swim sharks sign, you're going to figure, okay, there's no sharks. Let's go for, you know, let's hit the ocean. Um, but, but like you said, it's this creating of the mindset. I, I feel like we've gone the opposite direction. Instead of having a, instead of cultivating a culture of safety mindedness in and I'm not saying, okay, yeah, let's have it locked down. Let's, because that's another one. It's every time you mention anything, it's, oh, what do you want, lockdowns? No, that's actually what I'm trying to, you know, I would love for us to get away from never having to do that again because we can control this with other, you know, uh, other strategies. So um, if you create that culture of safety-mindedness with the idea that, okay, just like in fire season, if fires start raging, we're going to have to not have fires for a while. We're going to have to pivot what we do in our normal daily life to adjust to what nature is doing. So the same thing with COVID. If we're going to have to live with COVID, then like you said, I mean, if you have if you're sending these messages and if you have nothing in place at all, then people have this sense of comfort where they're not feeling like, okay, there's, there's anything out there that can hurt me. I have my vaccine. I'm indestructible. Whereas we've lost 10 times the amount of people in the last seven and a half months than we did in the previous 23. That's very concerning because if it's mild, I don't want to hear, oh, well, more people are getting infected. Yes, but more people are dying. So, you know, if we were cultivating that idea, that culture of, uh, we have to be ready for if we need to pivot instead of I can never put in mask mandates again. It's not within my power when it clearly is. It's written in the Health Act. I mean, that message alone, how many people are going to use that as their ammo? Oh, she's not putting in mandates now. She's not even allowed to. I'm not going to follow that rule. I mean, it's like you're, they're, they're shooting themselves in the feet, you know, with the public health messaging. It's like. You know, if Hal Johnson and Joanne McLeod all of a sudden on body break were like, let's hit up McDonald's because it's healthy. It makes no sense. It's kind of contradictory and it's it's super concerning. So I've tried to be consistent on this front. I have no interest in being uh, someone who's fanning the fears of the flames of fear or fear mongering or anything. Anytime I've ever used any of the numbers and what we see and what we hear is just yeah. information. People will do with it as they see fit. My go-to line is not to be fearful, but to be mindful. And, you know, it's mm -hmm. been, I tell you what, I used to think that Muskrat Falls, I'd never have to encounter anything that's as frustrating, but this has surpassed it by light years uh, and uh, it's all part of the gig but you know yes. even inside the conversation around vaccines and all the rest of it for the conversation around a mask to have been so emotional and so controversial is still something that I really don't quite understand I get it people don't want to wear them fine but the imposition is I mean I'm just not quite sure if it's as uh, 
if it's as big a deal to some as they portrayed, especially on social media, which I know is not reflective of real life necessarily, but boy, oh boy, again, every time you see a thread about masks, people are mad. They're really mad about it. And, you know, I guess that's just the whole business of being told what you can and cannot do or what you should or should not do. Uh, appreciate the time, Keith. Enjoy your weekend. No problem, Patty. You too. Stay safe. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break for the news when we come back another hour left to speak with you do not go away every saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin the cabin party with brian o'connell saturday night starting at 7 p.m on vocm welcome back to the show let's go line number one joe you're on the air hey patty um yeah i don't understand about the masks either even though even if i agree with those people they, they just seem so dictated anyways I wanted to mention there was a study on a few minutes ago about talking about a spooky uh, graveyard behind St. Bond. Sure, just if Joe, if you have us on speaker, can you take pick up the receiver just so we can hear you a little clearer? Uh, no, I have it on my cell phone, and I don't okay. have any. I'll hold it up right like this. Is this better? Uh, sure, go right ahead. Okay, if you walk behind St. Bond's, behind the uh, ice rink, on the right there is a large cemetery. And it's, it's, it's right at the back of Presentation Convent in Presentation Square. It's the nuns' cemetery, because that's a mother house and an infirmary. And a lot of the nuns go there and die there and are buried there. So there's nothing spookier. There's no students buried there, nothing hidden about it. There's no spooky graveyard there. Yeah, someone just sent me a picture of it, as a matter of fact, during the news. Yeah, it's quite, you know, it's big. It's obviously a graveyard, and they're all the same, right? It's all... None. No families are there, no individuals, no students, nothing. So he doesn't have to be worried about that creature. No, I'm not worried about it at all. Um, no. So, I mean, for some people, there's just that built-in or inherent spooky feature of a graveyard. I don't personally feel that way when I walk through. And many people use some of the graveyards as a walk-through uh, in their normal course of events during the day. So I think so. Uh, I actually have some friends that enjoy going to the graveyards to read the headstones and to learn a bit of history and some of the familial names that are so common in this neck of the woods. So I, I think they're more fascinating than spooky. Oh, yeah. Well, most of, most of the week I'm up to shore uh, between uh, Cape Royal and uh, Renews, and we just had cemetery masses over the last few weeks, and people love to go to the cemeteries there and pray and walk around and visit and fix up the graves, that sort of thing. No, this was more, I got the sense of what he was saying, this was just more sort of habitual, anything Catholic is evil and spooky. Oh, and once again, I don't feel that way. Uh, of course not. Um, no, I know. You don't. I know. You never talk that way. Well, but, uh, I certainly I try not to anyway because I don't feel the need, uh, nor, nor is it anything that I think. Well, look at the one out in Kamloops, right? They still haven't found a single body there, and you're not allowed to talk to the doctor, the researcher, the archaeologist that did the research by contract. You're not allowed to talk to her about it. So over a year and a half and uh, not a single body. So, But these things become stories. Anyway, thank you very much. I didn't mention that was uh, quite an innocent graveyard there. <laughs> I appreciate the time, Joe. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, yeah, one of a really close friend of mine, they actually, that's part of their pastime, their hobby. They do indeed look for familiar relationships and just recognize, you know, whether it be the ages and the era and learn some stories. And I think that's probably an interesting place to do exactly that. Okay, let's keep rolling. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Simeon. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you. Um, I just wanted to make a few comments about the. Uh, I didn't. I didn't hear what the lady said about the uh, indigenous people that that we uh, we get a free stuff from the retail stores. 
Well, that's not that's not the fact. The fact is that we, we still contribute ta- in, in, in taxes when we buy when we shop on the retail stores or any other uh, restaurants or gas we, or any, anything like that. The only time we we get tax exempt when when the stuff has been delivered to uh, to uh, to reservation and, and and that's the only time we don't we don't pay tax if we wish to do so. But if not. Uh, if the delivery is not been done, then then we are forced to pay taxes, and which is I honestly do all the time, uh, pay taxes as well. And I also can't, we uh, the you know people of Labrador has been contributing uh, within the province of Newfoundland Labrador of uh, of our economy, and uh, and that that is one of the biggest. Uh, the biggest contributors we have as as, uh, as uh, the, of the uh, the lands land, the lands that within our, our territory, and that the resources have been been used and and it's been distributed throughout the defined Labrador province. Some and, uh, of the some of the commentary, Simeon, was also about things that happen and uh, whether it be addictions and the housing concerns, uh, whether it be in Labrador or otherwise, and that the comment. I'm not trying to put the words in the woman's mouth. But she said, you know, to be given life coaches and to get your own affairs in order, to take some responsibility for the problems in your community. You and I have had this conversation in the past. So whether it be federal government policies, provincial government policies, what is the role of indigenous leaders and parents in your community to ensure that you stem the tide of some of the things that have plagued you, whether it be with addiction issues or otherwise? What role do you play? Well, the role we, that, that we play as an Aboriginal people, both communities, not Shisha and Shahajit, is that the uh, we are some of us hold the uh, the uh, the uh, insurances of our medicals, and so, uh, a lot of stuff a lot of stuff are not been covered on not not under the non-insured non-insured health benefits, but we still have to pay some of the medication. Like look at me myself, I I can speak for this uh, for this very very. Truthfully, I I have been seen a dentist, and my bill is about seventeen hundred dollars one time, despite I have uh, some life insurance, and some insurances uh, don't cover all your medical needs and all the uh, all your medication, and uh, and the fact is that that we have taken responsibility, and I, and I believe that the, you know both land councils and you know nation, including themselves, that. Uh, we have we have contributed in economy uh, throughout the, the country of Canada, and uh, and that we we will continue contribute the uh, in any shape or form of uh, of our economy within the province of Newfoundland Labrador, and uh, we have been supportive. Uh, pouring our own IB agreements with uh, with airlines, we have been putting a lot of money into hotels so people can work. So people can get paid uh, within the final level province, right? So that's, and we don't get the free stuff like uh, like uh, the thing is it's it's a handout. It's not that's 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 not true. We may we have a status. We are, we are status Indians, uh, and that's what uh, the federal government has set it up years ago, long before my long before I was born. The, the Indian Act was introduced to them. They're the ones who. Uh, who control the colonialism, if I can say that over the year, but uh, and that, those are the facts and they are undisputed. And okay. we didn't ask 
Yeah. Let me put it to you straight. Uh, uh, yeah. I think that's what, what people were getting at is it's time for indigenous peoples. I'm just going to get you to react to some of the comments I've heard. It's yeah. time yeah. for indigenous peoples, leaders, families, parents to take more ownership of their own problems in their own communities as opposed to saying it's somebody else's fault. Your reaction to those comments, Simeon? Yeah, and I, I truly believe, and I don't disagree with one bit, and, and I think that's why we have land claims uh, negotiated. It was the province of Newfoundland, and the federal government uh, sit, uh, negotiating with us with our land claims, and and it shouldn't be that way. And we should be in the, we are a sovereign nation. We are not conquered people, and uh, and we want to control our lives. We want to we want to have our own policing. I mean, when every t- I mean, I can go back to the history of David Sunland. When I was a first uh, tribal police officer in in David Sunland, I mean, the province was just so agitating; wouldn't accept our our trying to take control of our justice. And there we had a was a fight with late uh, uh, Ed Roberts, me and him, when I was a chief, when I was a bad chief, and uh, but we managed to. Uh, to sit down and bring everybody at the table uh, and manage to get a tripartite agreement with policing within the province of Newfoundland, Labrador, and Canada. And that's, uh, and I, I mean, you can't be expecting any Aboriginal groups that uh, they are trying, they want to self, we want to self-government, we want to take ownership of our own affairs, we don't want to depend on the provinces and Canada all the time. And, um, I mean, there is a jurisdiction issues. I know that for a fact. And a lot of people with the data regulations and laws that we have to abide by it, and like everybody else, and we are not about the law. And um, and right now we are very close to uh, sign sign off the our land claims deal. And if that's the case, then by all means we will be governing ourselves. We will be. We will be taking responsibility and ownership of our own affairs, and 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 that's one of the greatest things uh, we have today. Now is negotiating at at the table with the uh, with the feds in the province, and and it's a long time coming. And uh, we don't always want to chase the federal government because the federal government has fiduciary responsibility within within this uh, two committee of negotiation and sharing. And that's and 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 and, uh, and that's and that's uh, a given. And it's uh, but sometimes you will see. I, I for my past experience, federal federal government and provincial government willfully uh, willfully violate our constitutional rights. And and uh, we know we have that right. We know that we can do this. We can't. We will govern ourselves once when that time comes and when we cross that bridge. We'll cross. Bridge. Uh, did you want to make a comment about the inquiry before we run out of time? Yeah, yeah, I just want to make a quick comment right now. Uh, my wife's working with, uh, she's a healing code, uh, inquiry coordinator, and she's been on the conference call for the last few days and, and trying to organize it. And then it's coming. And the thing that I, that I always stress, uh, stress is that uh, when you put uh, people go through uh, with pain and suffering, then then people got to be accountable. And I, and I said that someone is going to be accountable. There is going to be accountability uh, once the inquiry is uh, commenced and, and when the inquiry is concluded. And uh, and I say that uh, whoever, whomever, I can only speak for myself. I cannot, I won't be able to speak others. Like I know the impact that I have with uh, 
with Influence Labro Child Welfare Act, what they done to my wife. I mean, it damaged my, my family, and I was the one who went through that, to, to uh, seeking help for my son, and that was a big mistake. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna deny it, uh, seeking uh, medical attention, uh, uh, a treatment for my son. And uh, and I mean the services are there. That's why I took advantage, but it didn't go as as I thought it was supposed to be. It ends, and my son died at the end. So it has a tremendous impact on me. It had tremendous impact on my older son. And my son is out there in Goose Bay drinking, blaming himself what uh, what his younger brother did because he took the truck that day and never uh, and he was visiting out in Navashish, came back, and that was the, the news the, the news that we heard that Thunderheart took his own life. Um, and he said, if, and my son, the older son said, uh, if I happened to be at home, maybe Thunderheart would have been, would have been alive and you guys could, uh, we could have looked for him. But that's, I mean, Thunderheart, I don't know what they did to Thunderheart. I know they beat him up out in the West to knock him down. It wasn't response, 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 uh, response to, uh, to the staff and his head was banged to the wall. And the lady, the, the witness, the eyewitness, even wrote saying, Thunderheart, after the knock, rushed him to the hospital because he wasn't responding, he came back. And Thunderheart was totally not himself. He wasn't playing guitar. He wasn't eating. He was just, he wasn't, it wasn't Thunderheart. And I know that, and I saw that myself, it wasn't Thunderheart. So something needs to be looked at, and I'm not accusing anybody, but some, the inquiry will not lie. The testimonies will not lie because we are bound to tell the truth and nothing but the truth will help us God. And that's, and that's what we're going to do. And that's my intentions. I appreciate, the, I appreciate the time, Simeon. Always. Uh, and again, we're sorry for your loss. Yeah. Thank you very much, Fatty. Take care. Have a great weekend. You too. Yeah. Bye-bye. All right. Let's take a break. Coming back, David's in the queue. wants to talk about selling the churches up to Cape Shore. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. David, you are on the air. Yes. Uh, good morning, Betty. Uh, you hear me okay there? Not too bad. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I want to talk about the uh, the churches on uh, Cape Shore area. Right now, they're all up for, uh, all up for sale, right? And that's... Uh, Oh, it's it's heartbreaking, it's heartbreaking, gut wrenching, you know. That uh, all the people from all those communities uh, gave their their money and their lumber at the time and their labor, and uh, all the churches were built without any money owing on them, and all the churches was taken care of, and uh, each uh, priest that came to the, to the Cape Shore area, you know, was treated with great respects, and we had some had and still have some fine great priests that have been here. But there in uh, June 2021 there, the Archbishop, he sent a request for personal input. Twelve questions on it. And, uh, (coughs) excuse me. (coughs) So I I answered questions and I wrote a a four-page letter, uh, you know, giving suggestions in ways that we could uh, raise the money and save our churches and save our religion. And uh, it's been a year and two months, and I never had a reply one way or the other 
from anybody from the committee or the uh, Archbishop. That's who the letter went to. There was a committee formed at the time. So I had a lot of good ideas on it there, ways that we could raise the money there. And, and one of the first things I, 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 I said was what we need is a heartfelt, uh, apologetic letter written up and admit the wrong, because everybody knows that it was wrong done, greatly wrong done, a lot of people hurt, but now uh, we're all hurting now. Uh, I mean, the young children are going to be uh, born now, you know, in a year or two's time, they probably won't be able to be christened, be no baptisms, be no confirmation. If somebody gets sick and, and uh, is dying, which uh, happened, I mean, we had the priest come to my poor mother, Lord Marciano, <clears throat> when she was sick to give her the last rites, and if there was an accident down the road, Oh, us Catholics used to have something in their pocket saying that I am a Catholic in an accident, please call a priest. But it's going to be nobody to call now. Sure, and even some of these churches, some of these churches don't even have a priest. They have a rotation that they'll get a priest every now and then will come because they're working for a bunch of parishes and a bunch of different churches. So that's long been a complicating factor. But I think you mentioned, you know, the inability to raise the money to buy your own church, wherever it is. I'm not sure which church we're talking about, Colonnette or wherever. So you are able to do exactly that. Has that effort been made in your community for a, a collection of the local parishioners to try to the church to preserve it for Catholic celebrations? Uh, possibly could. Yes, actually, Patty, I'm, I'm calling from Patrick's Cove in the Cape Shore area. Okay. And uh, we had uh, the, the parish had a general account. Like, uh, there's, there's a branch church, Patrick's Cove, St. Brian's and Lance. And there, a couple of years ago, uh, between the parish general account, and each church had their own fund, and they had healthy funds there, too. Well, I'm only in a small community, a couple of dozen people or so in it here and now, and we had a church fund of over $10,334, and all the other communities had, some had way, way more, and everybody was close. So we had a total of $160,830 in our account there. That diocese took every cent of it. And they returned 20000 for to uh, uh, continue to try to operate the church, which would be heat, light, salaries, insurance, and the whole bit. But there was 160830 there. And, uh, but it's not the same, Patty, if, if uh, you know, if people just went out and bought a church here or bought a church there, because there's, uh, where's the priest going to come from? There's not going to be any, uh, any priest, and there's nothing with the Catholic uh, church really would develop, because uh, uh, really what I'm thinking is that Rome should be paying for this. Uh, I heard through the grapevine there that there's only $50 million uh, required now to pay off the Mount Castle uh, thing, and... Uh, if the Archdiocese sells all the properties they're planning on selling, they're hoping to get $20 million. So where's the other thirty going to come from? But I mean that uh, the Irish Christian brothers never came from Ireland and built Mancashel and started it without Rome knowing about it. They had to give them the go-ahead to come and do it because I mean that uh, uh, an individual can't go into some town tomorrow and open up a great big store and place with Almet sign on it without their permission. So Rome had to know about this and Rome got their own bank, and there's billions and billions and billions of dollars in Rome. So $50 million for Rome would only be dropping the bucket. We'd save, we'd save all our churches, we'd save our religion, the collections would still be coming in, and, you know, that it dragged out too long. They were trying to sweep it under the rug. This should have been dealt with years ago, but I'm still sure that Rome should be paying for this, not us. We're the ones who are paying for it there now. 
You know? I get that point. I totally get that point. Yeah. They, the Vatican was not named in the suit, of course. The suit only named the St. John's Roman Catholic Episcopal Corporation, I believe is what the formal title is. And the, right. the issue right. regarding yeah. the... Hold on. The issue regarding the Vatican is an interesting one because there are some extraordinary floodgates that if and when the Vatican was obliged to pay all the compensation to everyone who's ever sued the Catholic Church for a variety of reasons over the decades... That drop in the bucket, that would be a bucket full in a heartbeat because there's been a lot of these actions. I mean, there's another big developing story in the province of Quebec right now, so there's a lot on the go here. There, there, there is, I agree for sure, I agree for sure, but uh, I don't even know, uh, well, uh, they, they could have been approached, I mean, that uh, they gave half, I mean, that we know, that even though it might be a buckful, but long got parents, but they got parents of money. Oh, they do. And, uh, yeah. yeah, and I, uh, you know, I uh, suggested, you know, to the committee, because there was a committee sent out a letter, raised money, uh, you know, that, uh, what could we do with jointly between all of Canada, you know, approach all the other provinces and explain the situation, admit the wrong, and uh, see if we could get a little help from them, and uh, then do up letters and uh, approach like, the big companies, including the oil companies, contractors, businesses, and have your letter of apology, and uh, admit that it was wrong, and explain that we're trying to save our churches, would you be able to help us? I'm sure that would be after raising a good many million dollars by now. Probably. Hello? Yeah, I, I just well, said probably, yeah. Is it good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, even if you raise the $20 million by all the sales, uh, where does that leave us? I mean, I'm sure the church maybe can be... But they want 70000 for the church here, and uh, it was built... Uh, <laughs> It was built on the land that was donated by my father, and I mean, that was all free materials. It didn't cost anything. But, you know, in 10 years' time, that $70,000, <laughs> that, that won't be a drop in the bucket by then. And uh, we still have a religion. That's the thing that I'm uh, concerned me most. Well, is, uh, you, you will. Religion is but you will. Like even the, uh, the uh, archbishop here made comments along the lines of, you know, religion is where you are. Religion is in your home, religion is in your heart, religion is in your community, in your social circles, and your fellow parishioners, and the bricks and mortar is a place to congregate, as opposed to religion goes away if you don't have a church. Now, that's not me saying it. That's a a paraphrase of what the Archbishop had to say. Uh, I'm a bit late for the newscast, David. Would you like to say anything very quickly before I have to go? Uh, no, I just wanted to, to, to uh, thank all the, all the people you know, for giving the great collections. And I'll just touch on one thing quickly there. Quickly. Uh, a few years back there, we had a cemetery fund plus a church fund, and we raised $20,000 through donations of the people there and had a statue of uh, St. Patrick made in Italy and shipped here and installed by a contractor. Like, you know, that uh, money going to the churches was never an issue around here, and the whole Kipshaw area is the same thing. But uh, I hope that, please God, that uh, we can overcome this. And that's all I got to say, Patty. I'm glad I got it out there. Appreciate your time. Have a nice weekend, David. Sure enough, you too. Okay, bye bye. All right, it is time for the final uh, newscast of the morning. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The drive on your VOCM. So welcome back to the program. All right, line number one, Jeanette, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. Um, calling because um, I have a situation with my parents in that they had received a check that apparently you've had a lot of 
people talking about on your show and they have misplaced it. So I've been trying to find out myself exactly where this check come from and I'm not having much luck with it. So mom says, why don't you give the show a call and see where we can find where it came from? Well, there, I mean, if you go to Canada.ca and just go to the Google uh, or the search bar there for old age security, I believe all of these programs are administered through Service Canada. But uh, I, I can find that out here pretty quickly. Here, one second. Yeah, apparently it was a one-time thing for people um, uh, over 70, maybe. Because yeah. I've, t- I've already checked with the, the um, GST uh, senior benefits and they don't qualify for that. So I don't know what else it was. Now, they said they had the check but they in their hands, but they didn't notice where it came from exactly, only that it was the government, okay. and they misplaced it. I can help you. So it was old age security over the age of 75. They got a one-time check of $500 and a 10% increase thereafter. Okay, so... Yeah, Service Canada, as I thought. So let's see if I can get you something easy to deal with here. Now, of course, there's nothing easy when you're dealing with the federal no. government, but I do have a number where you can call Service Canada because that's who administers all of these programs when it comes to checks and requests for replacement checks or what have you. So if you have a pen, I can give you a number. Go for it. Uh, toll free, 1 800 277 9914. And you said it was for what, exactly? Well, this is Employment and Social Development Canada, and the checks are administered through Service Canada, so that's where you would call to get any information on old age security, guaranteed income supplement, and I would assume to uh, request a replacement check. And it was for people 75 years and over one time? Uh, That was the increase brought forward by the federal budget, that's right. Okay, well, I appreciate your time. It was $500 each. And it was one time only. They had to be 75 on the date where that was uh, passed in the House of Commons. And then if you you turn 75 thereafter, then you were eligible for the 10% increase. But you had to be 75 at that time to get the 500. Okay, perfect. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. No problem, Jeanette. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Let's go. Line number three, Roger on the air. How are you doing, Paddy? Not too bad. How about you? Uh, reasonably well. Uh, Paddy, just interesting uh, point uh, crossed my mind. All the uh, Catholic churches uh, that are up for sale and whatnot, uh, you know, do, do in fact, do the churches own them? If you and I and 500 citizens uh, build a church and, you know, we're Catholic and then suddenly it's built and we all start going to church, where did the church obtain ownership of these properties are they selling properties that they legally don't own well they own the property apparently i'm still a bit confused on some of the ins and outs here and i've spoken to a couple of the specifics whether it be for instance saint gabriel's hall in marystown the it's no longer a church it's a it's a, a place for the community to gather they can sit up to 400 it was built over 107 years ago so they built it they funded it they maintained it they operated it now all of a sudden it's an asset being sold by the Episcopal Corporation. I think they're asking a fair question as to how and why that is now up for sale. The church didn't build it. The church didn't maintain it. A private yeah. group of citizens in that community did. And then it's even things like the Kevin Kennedy Memorial Garden in St. Vincent's. It's a memorial garden to a young man who died in Afghanistan in 2007. How can that be part of a sale? So you're asking important questions and I don't, like, it'd probably be important for me to know the beginning of all these lawsuits because someone is, is asking me, why would 
all the church money, why communities aren't able to avail of a 0% uh, interest loan to go ahead and buy the church to preserve it as a uh, place of Catholic celebration. Good question. How come it's not the Vatican? Excellent question. I don't think the lawsuit referenced anything beyond the Episcopal Corporation here locally. So short answer is I don't know, but I have very specific questions about some of these assets that are being sold as to who actually owns them. And what, why do they think that they have the full ownership that they can put it up on the, uh, on the block for sale? I don't know. It's a good question. Yeah, because I believe this should start a whole new, uh, you know, outlook on all this stuff. Because obviously the Catholic Church did some funny stuff to get into trouble that they're into. And now, I mean, it's not a, obviously it's not beyond them to do, cause more trouble in trying to fix their or save their asses or save their money. Uh, it's a funny affair. This should be looked into under a great investigation. And anybody who thought they bought the Basilica or anything else, I wouldn't go taking the windows out just yet. Well, they're not. They're going to leave it as is. Uh, what I guess... Uh, my point is that I don't think you should start renovating things. You may not legally have any right to the building you just bought. I don't know. I mean, it might be easy enough for me to invite Jeff Budden, who represents the victims, as to some of the things that were negotiated and discussed in court. Because you can only imagine that well-trained, experienced attorneys tried to cover a variety of the angles to make sure that they were all hands were on the right track. And whether or not there was a firm assessment done by an independent organization, like Deloitte and Touche or what have you, about which property can indeed be sold legally, bought legally, is, I, I'm just guessing they must have gone down that road. But rather than me guess, I'm going to see if I can get Mr. Budden to come on. He's usually pretty good with his time on these types of matters, but they're, they're fair questions to be asked, and I can't answer them, but I can get someone who can. Yeah, sounds great, buddy. Sound about uh, right? Yeah, that, you know, it's just something that I'm sure wiser minds than mine might be able to say, hold on, we didn't look at that, so... Because it's a terrible, terrible farce. How can anybody be proud to be a Catholic when they don't... when they see what's gone on... I mean, were we part of some strange cult, or were we? Well, no, because some people, because some people just had nothing to do with it, and they yeah, feel well, terrible about it. But that doesn't mean that all of a sudden their religious beliefs are automatically out the door, and they'll never return to the church, or they won't continue to pray, or they won't continue to, well, you know, go to the cemetery mass. I don't know. I mean, it's yeah. it's an individual thing. Yes, absolutely. Your religion basically is between your ears, and, and there's, I don't think there's any one religion any better than all the rest of them. You're all alike. It's between your ears and between you and your God. Appreciate the call this morning, Rod. Thank you. You take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, final break of the morning and of the week. Yoo-hoo! Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's try line one. Ed, you're on the air. Betty. Yeah. There was a lady called in a few minutes ago concerning her parents received a check for five hundred dollars mm-hmm. concerning the, the old age security. The increase was ten percent, but that ten percent went on to your monthly payment at that time, which I say approximately six hundred and forty-eight dollars. Right. So that was that was sixty-four dollars, plus there was another increase with the cost of living, which was 2.85, yeah, I believe. It was indexed to the Consumer Price Index, yeah. Right, but it didn't, it, it didn't amount to $500, Patty. It amounted to approximately $85. Yeah, but, but well, I didn't say anything different. What I said was, when it was passed, there was a one-time check of $500 to those who were 75 and older, and then it was a 10% increase thereafter. 
Yeah. Well, five hundred dollars was paid in, in two thousand and twenty-one. I know, but that's what I said. I'm not sure what we're oh, getting. I at. see what you mean. I misunderstood. What oh, you said, it's right. not a problem because I, I want to make sure I'm accurate on these things. All I was trying to say is that yes. for folks who were seventy-five years and older and receiving old age security at that time, they got a one-time check of five hundred dollars, yeah, and yeah. then thereafter the monthly benefits increased by ten percent and the indexed increase. Yeah, you you were correct on it, but I understood that they got the the five hundred dollar check this year. But you were right, Patty. Yeah, no, whatever check they lost, and as opposed to her trying to get into her family business and her parents of what check it was, I just tried to give her a number where she can apply for her replacement. Yeah. You you were correct. Okay. Thanks a lot, Ed. Thanks. Have a nice day. You too, sir. Bye bye. Bye bye now. Uh, who's the fellow with the gravel on the road? We want to sneak on that warning if we can. Is he gone? He's busy. Is he all right? Let's go to line number two. Vic, you're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. I know you had a very interesting conversation yesterday with two people pertaining to, I think, indigenous people in Canada. And, and the, um, I guess they were, I think they were complaining about all the benefits they were receiving. And, uh, of course, and other uh, people in our society are probably not re- receiving fair treatment in terms of other benefits or benefits. Uh, but uh, I, and I think one lady said there that the veteran or the uh, indigenous people in Western Canada, I think, were treated differently. Uh, from my general experience, of course, uh, the um, indigenous people in Canada, uh, I probably had to look at them as owning owning this land. I mean, I guess they're landlords. Would we say the indigenous people in Canada? are really our landlords, so the federal government is trying to compensate them. And right now, I think it's a state of flux and all that. Uh, they're they're uh, negotiating with individual people in Canada because, uh, and certainly there's so many different tribes of uh, individual people in Canada, and uh, I think a lot of them are getting, and I think those people that uh, spoke of yesterday, I think were, uh, from my point of view, I, I think I sort of agree with them because... I would say, I know after my experience of speaking with an indigenous person, I think in Manitoba, she was saying the benefits she was getting were no were no different than welfare. And so they really, then all the, all, so it would depend, it would seem like it would depend on the different, uh, uh, um, I suppose, bands or different groups and, and how they negotiate with the federal government. But certainly every one of those individual uh, bands you know, or tribes or whatever, what you want to refer to them as, uh, there, there's different agreements, and uh, even even here, I guess even local, or I mean, there's individual people uh, probably getting uh, benefits here in Newfoundland, and uh, probably some of the siblings are not because they, they didn't qualify under under the agreement. So it's all uh, you know it depends on the agreement. So I sort of agree with those two people, and uh, certainly uh, I think I read the the what they call it the Indian Act, I think in, in 2009. And, I mean, that's very, uh, what's the word? It certainly doesn't lend justice to uh, the individuals, uh, you know, the indigenous people. And I think the federal government's uh, the rules and regulations pertaining to, to that act, is, to me, it certainly doesn't uh, uh, also provide justice or to, to the indigenous people. So uh, I guess, you know, so how do you, how do you, uh, you know, make the people in Canada indigenous people happy and also the taxpayers I mean the, the taxpayers you got to look at the whole thing well, where's all the benefits I mean who owns what even though they own this country 
I mean, the indigenous people in the beginning, uh, we can look at what the, what the Europeans have put, put in this country. You know, but what does that uh, what does that have to do with it? I'm sorry. Uh, well, I, well, I mean, okay, the benefit. Well, if you're working all your life paying taxes, I think you you know, and then you, even and so, how do you equate? You know, if if uh, you got to look at both sides of this, I think that the, should they give the indigenous people more monies than the, and the taxpayer than the, the, the European guy? You know what I mean? Not really. Um, I mean, some of these are land claims deals that have been struck between governments and different bands. I mean, the, not everything is the same right across the country. Oh, oh, oh yes, as I indicated. So what the, it's a very, well, right now, it's a very, the, the, what I can read is still not done properly. There's a lot of, you know, after all those years, and uh, uh, certainly here in Newfoundland, I know they have a, a big band here, and uh, there's people, I think, there you could probably, uh, there's certain within the families, I think, there some are that are not living in the province. Of course, are not eligible because they don't have. They're not, they have to live in a, what do you call this? A uh, I guess an area or or residential that was selected by the federal government. So it's all the rules and regulations. Then you have another. So the same families living in some other province, well, they don't get any benefits. You know. Because they're not okay. living in Newfoundland under under the under the the, the community that was uh, designated by the federal government, so the, I can see where those people are coming from. Fair enough. Uh, okay. Hope you have a nice weekend, Vic. I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Take Bye. care. Bye bye. Last word this morning goes to line number four. Jim, you're on the air. Hi, Jim. Jim on four. Hi. Yes, sir. Yeah, I just come from the Paradise to Team Guju. There's a lot of gravel on the road on the inside lane. Happens far too often and presents a real problem. You're not only spitting it up at the vehicles behind you, but if you get it on the bend, you might find yourself slipping through the shoulder. Appreciate the heads up. So it's between Paradise and Team Guju. Yeah, there's a good driver's heads up, that's all. Yeah, I appreciate that. All right, then. Good man. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, bye. Bye-bye. So loose gravel on the outer ring road between Paradise and Team Guju. All right, good show today. Good shows this week. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program. And yes, we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. We'll talk Monday.